And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. world i am harmony i am maggie and today we are discussing a book that has been on tiktok for forever and therefore i've been dying to read it it's called the mermaid the witch and the sea by maggie tukuda hall so maggie first impressions of this book first impressions of this book were that i knew absolutely nothing about it going into it and i hadn't heard anything about it uh, you just were like i really want to read this book when we were planning the season and i put it on the calendar <laughs> so i had no idea what to expect and i would say that the description i have of this book is a little competing because on the one hand it's it reads like a fairy tale in a lot of ways and so there's part of me that feels like it's very delightful and very sweet but it's also an older YA book, so it also is a little dark. It was darker than I expected, definitely, in terms of the tone of the first 50 pages. Something really intense happens. I was like, oh shit, I didn't think we were going to go there, but I guess that's what's happening. But I think that this is a book that really has a moral and a message to it in a lot of ways about empathy and caring and radical advocacy of oneself but then also radical action being able to have a lot of impact if you can really muster up your bravery in one moment which also adds to the fairy tale aspect but I think that Takuda Hall does a really good job of having that moral center and having that message without it being overpowering it doesn't read moralistically in any way it's just kind of very well integrated and very well embedded into the novel it's also very gay and I shipped the main characters so hard what were your first impressions? Right. So I found out about this novel through TikTok. And I know that I love ocean adventures. And I love mermaids. And I love witches. And I knew that it was sapphic because TikTok told me so. So I didn't know what to expect beyond that. I wasn't expecting it to read so much like a fairy tale. And I think this book was unique for me because maybe because of the ADD and because of the reading material that we often choose, I take a really long time to get through a book. So even if I'm sucked in, I'll read a chapter, sit and think about it. But for this book, I was reading it and could not put it down at all. And I read it really fast for me, which was really interesting because as Maggie pointed out, there are a lot of really big themes in this book in terms of it talks a lot about colonization and it talks about how to do action and it talks about survival and the power of words and stories. So there were lots of heavy things that are worth delving into this book, but it was so hard for me to take that step and be like, all right, I want to critically analyze this as I'm reading because it was so, the story was just so grabbing and yeah. I just flew through it. So those were my first impressions and I loved it and it was beautiful and I love how gay it is. Yeah, I think that this book strikes a really wonderful balance, especially given the age group it's written for in terms of tackling a lot of really big themes 
and doing it in a way that isn't dumped down, but it's also not buried beneath the surface, right? You don't necessarily have to do a super, super close reading, you know, write an essay, get your pens out to be like, what is the author trying to say here? She makes her case and it's just that the case she's making is beautifully interwoven with the very real thoughts and feelings that the characters are having as they're navigating the byproducts of colonialism, really, because the whole crux of this book politically happens because one country has taken over and colonized another. And now we are following a set of moves, counter moves, pirates and spies and a, and a political marriage that's happening or supposed to be happening as a result of this war that has gone on in the past and all of these very understandable tensions that are happening between these two countries because of this colonization and because the countries, the multiple countries that have been colonized, obviously do not appreciate that experience. But because all of this context is so embedded into the plot of the story, it feels very natural the way that the author is able to talk about how those things would influence the lives of our characters, who both are kind of at the center of these machinations, but also have really just found themselves there by happenstance and have really sort of been sucked into this political war machine in many ways by mistake. One, because she happens to be born into a very high born wealthy political family in they're called the Imperials in the colonizing country. And another, because she happens to be aboard a pirate ship that is taking Evelyn, who is the Imperial daughter to her betrothed. Yeah, I think I really appreciate this book and a lot of books we've read this season, actually. But let's focus on this one because it was so good at depicting how we perpetuate evil, (laughs) which I feel like I've already said this season, in our everyday life and how that is an aspect of survival created by these larger, really fucked up systems. One of the things I loved about this book is that For the majority of the book, we get our two love interests' perspectives. It it deviates between Evelyn, who is the imperial princess-like girl and who is oppressed by patriarchy primarily, and the expectations of being higher born, and Florian, or Flora, who is a gender-fluid character, so... They go by all pronouns. <laughs> and she is really, you know, she has learned to be tough and learned to sacrifice others' well-being in, in exchange for survival because they've been forced onto the streets their whole life and have had to deal with crazy poverty and have been forced to fight for themselves at a really young age. And then, so we get those two perspectives, right? But then we also get these other perspectives kind of midway through the book. One is Rake, who is a, <laughs> who is a quirk born. So he's, a, he's, he's part of a colonized group of peoples and he is a spy on this, this pirate ship for the Pirate Supreme, who is a non-binary character who commits the sea's justice. I'm, but I'm getting ahead of myself because there's just so many weird things going on in this book. But yeah, we get Ray, we get Ray, and he's, he's a complicated character too, because he is complicit in so much in order to 
further his spying agenda and he also has a really dark past and he hates all imperial people which isn't necessarily fair because some of us are born into privilege right it's fine to hate the system but are you going to completely dehumanize the person that's kind of a question that's talked about in rake's character rake says yes for a long time (laughs) rake says yes basically until the end and even then is like i don't feel sad but uh i feel sad for my friend who's not imperial (laughs) and then we also get this perspective of genevieve who is also from cork the same colonized place that rake is but is younger and therefore does not remember all of the horrible things like rake does and is so brainwashed by the system that she is willing to throw her people under the bus and do anything it takes to serve the imperial nation, right? So she's also a really complicated character, but we get to see her perspective and also understand that in these circumstances, she's only 15 and the book, it doesn't shy away from the fact that she is a product of this brainwashing and, and probably wouldn't be like this if she were older like Rake. So I don't know. This book is fabulous because it, it allows for all of that moral grayness and it allows for all of the characters to make mistakes and questionable choices and it explores how that relates to survival and then it also explores what actions are going to better protect the ecology almost because the sea is a character in this book and the sea does not like being colonized and colonization contributes to the killing of her daughters which are mermaids and i think i'm just gonna let maggie take over because i feel like i've thrown so many things out there but this and i don't know how to explain it all i think you hit on the really big tenets of the book though the place that i was gonna jump off is sort of where you ended so i guess i'll just go there which is that part of what i think makes this book so brilliant is that colonization and imperialization is a very multi faceted process that I think is often boiled down to political and economic machinations when in fact there is so much personal there's war but it also has direct impacts on the land so I think that the characterization of the sea and the sea is actually one of the perspectives we get in the interludes in the novel so only in very short short bursts but we do see directly the sea's perspective on everything that's happening is I think that we see so many of the facets of the impact of colonization. It goes from the very micro-personal rakes. Rake's vendetta about all of this isn't just that he remembers on a large scale a war that happened in his country. It's because he describes being able to remember watching his mother be gutted in the street because of it, right? So there's this really tangible personal hatred that we see in rape. And then we zoom up a little bit, right, to characters like Genevieve and Lady Ayer, who are spies for the Imperial forces and are really there to kind of stir the pot and make sure that, to to basically stir up shit in the colonized countries so that they're busy squabbling either amongst themselves or internally in civil disputes so that they're distracted from the bigger force of the Imperial nation that keeps them oppressed, which if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time will sound familiar to you because this is a theme that Harmony and I talk about all the time as one of the key tools of white supremacy in general. And then there's the really macro level of the sea and 
seeing how the land and the earth itself is being impacted by what the humans are doing and characterizing that in a very real way. And then on top of all of this, you have a magic system that's happening where stories carry magical impacts and mermaids are real and sort of metaphorical extensions of the sea. But also the sea has other powers in and of themselves. The sea is like the owner operator basically of the Leviathan, (laughs) which is the Pirate Supreme's ship that they use to go do the sea's will, right? To protect the sea's resources. And I think that one of the really interesting things about this novel is the way in which it's able to layer personal micro and macro motivation on top of each other. It's personal and political for every character all the time. Even characters like Florian and his brother Alfie, who are on the pirate ship the Dove to begin with because they have been failed by the system basically and were experiencing homelessness out in the street and were feared for their lives basically. Their story at the beginning together feels very micro and feels very personal, but as they're kind of wrapped up in this larger tapestry, you see the ways in which all of this colonization has impacted them as well and kind of really flows together to create very in-depth character motivations that I think complicates everything. This is a book that sets out to complicate narratives of colonization, I think. And I, as Harmony's already touched on, I think that that's why you have so many perspectives in the novel, because you see what's happening from nearly every side with different layers of privilege and different layers of choosing and different memories involved to influence all of this. Yeah, it's a gorgeous novel. Okay, so I'm ready. I'm ready now to tie this into our world. If you if you're also ready, I can't see your face. So I'm just going to do it without your consent. (laughs) So I have our guiding questions. And I wanted to I guess we've kind of been talking about this question already. But how much agency do our characters have under this system? And I guess I'm going to change this question a little bit. Because this is a this is a fantasy world, right? I don't think it's a one on one for white supremacy. Because I think even though I'm not very well-versed in this, I think it's talking about the Japanese colonization, maybe, or it's inspired by that because of the cultural cues we get. But I doubt it's a one-on-one for that as well. So (laughs) it's a completely different world. But how can we look at this system of imperialism and how can we compare that to our current system and the real modern 21st century world from a western perspective i'll say because everyone deals with different things and that's maggie and my experience under capitalism are these are these worlds similar and if so how much agency do our characters have and could we have the same or even more agency in our current system yeah that's a really interesting question and i think it's part of the thing that makes fantasy both difficult and interesting to analyze from perspectives like these because so many things are analogous to the real world, but nothing is ever one-to-one and you can't ever make direct comparisons. I think that the lessons I take about agency from this novel are a fewfold. The first is that storytelling matters, but only when you have complete control over your own narrative. Florian slash Flora, because they go by both names throughout the novel, 
has very real tangible magic and magical effects that they can produce when they tell stories that they deeply believe to oversimplify the magic system here. But as they're being taught how to harness this magic, they're being used in ways that they don't see and don't necessarily consent to by their teacher, by the person who's teaching and sharing this power with them. And it's not until Flora zooms out and sees how this power sort of fits in to the larger context of the world and takes control of her own narrative that she's able to really harness the power and harness her own agency to its full potential because she's not being sort of puppeted or influenced by other people in the novel as as much anymore. I think the other thing that I take from this novel in terms of agency is that I think that there's no way to have a perfect amount of agency, which is a no-duh sort of situation, right? But as you mentioned at the beginning, one of the things that this novel does so well is it's a novel that really portrays the fact that to do good, some of these characters have to perpetuate evil and perpetuate harm, at least in their minds. They're, they're doing that in order to do good and make an impact in the world ultimately, Rake is really the perfect character for this because he's deep, deep, deep undercover on the Dove, which is a ship that's doing things that he is totally at odds with morally. He has to participate in those things because he's deep undercover. But he knows that if he stays the course and continues collecting and continues reporting, that the Dove and its crew are going to get their comeuppance, which is sort of one of the plot arcs that we follow throughout the novel. But he's perpetuating harm this entire time. But he's making the active choice to do that. On the one hand, there's a lack of agency there because the reason that he's forced to kind of go deep undercover to begin with is because he's operating in a system, right? But on the other hand, within that system, he's making a kind of controversial choice to say, this is how I'm going to do good. This is how I justify the fact that I'm doing harm in purpose of doing good. So I don't know that I'm necessarily taking a lot of lessons there, except for the fact that agency and good are ideals that we, I think, are striving for constantly. But sometimes the getting of there can be messier and complicated than we'd like to think. And then the third thing about agency in this novel is that sometimes it only takes one moment to make a really radical choice to get oneself a lot of agency. And I think that Evelyn is the perfect character for this. Evelyn's whole arc and whole story really starts when she decides that she's going to feed the mermaid that's trapped upon the dove. She does not want to see her die. And on top of that, she is going to free her, kind of come hell or high water. And that story really starts when she makes the very bold decision to just stick her whole hand in the tank where the mermaid is. She is unafraid of the sacrifice of physical pain, which is brilliantly juxtaposed with the fact that Florian just lost a finger due to not fulfilling his duties related to kind of guarding Evelyn on the dove. And so even regardless of that, even regardless of that pain Evelyn's willing to say, no, I'm willing to sacrifice anything. I'm willing to be bold in this moment to save this mermaid. And that one moment of action and taking agency back, agency of her body back and making that sacrifice sets her off on a completely new adventure. And at points in that adventure, she has less agency. She's basically kidnapped and she's definitely tortured while she's kidnapped by her betrothed. But it's because she has that lesson that she can kind of do anything if she puts her mind to it that she's able to escape and kind of go from there. So 
I think that those are really the three things about agency and moving beyond that that I really take from the novel. The first is that it's really important to own your own power and own your own narrative. The second is that agency and doing good in the world are often messier and more complicated than our ideals will often allow room for. And then that third is that being willing to sacrifice selflessly can often further agency or can at the very least further agency if we're willing to take bold action. That was very well said. I want to explore a little bit more Evelyn's character because throughout the book she kind of serves as the moral compass for Florian and that's part of what helps Florian fall in love with her. And I liked how the book kind of made a point of juxtaposing her with Flora because it showed that even though not everyone is like Evelyn, even though not all of the Imperials make the same decision, part of the reasons that Evelyn is able to be a moral compass, that she's able to feel compassion so readily, is able to know right from wrong or have some confidence in that, is because she's lived a more privileged life. And even though she's experienced deep neglect from her family and has her own hardships, that that level of creature comforts has given her the capacity to look at different things. Whereas for Flora, who... Florian really Florian has to has to shove down his ideas of right and wrong because in the moment he has to focus on just brute survival and another thing that I think was less less obvious in the book but I think might have been there for Evelyn's character was this idea that she learned right and wrong perhaps from reading and novels and that's why she's so gung-ho on teaching them to Florian and that's kind of beautiful because a part of Florian's under or Flora's there their understanding of their agency comes from being able to tell their own story kind of like Maggie said so there's also this kind of push I think from the novel and call to action when it comes to understanding what we call ourselves or tell ourselves and understanding what the different narratives are of the world and being able to create our own in order to make change. Yeah, I think that you articulated something that I was feeling about Evelyn but didn't necessarily know how to express, which is that Evelyn's ability to be a moral compass and Evelyn's, I think, ability to see the larger picture comes from a Venn diagram of things. The first is that she's privileged and has a lot of book learning. And the second is that she has still suffered in the system regardless of that privilege. And I think that those two things together, the sweet spot for her is that she's able to connect her own suffering to the larger machinations of the world and then also identify where others are suffering more under those same systems. Not in the, oh, you know, my suffering is is less intensive, you know, my trauma is less bad, but just to be able to say, I can see the spaces in the world where these things are even more likely to happen to other people. I can see the spaces in the world where even though I was suffering so much neglect from my parents, I was still safe in so many other ways. And that doesn't negate the impact of the neglect of my parents, but it does mean that I had a lot of extra safety and comfort that others weren't able to have. And some of that comfort comes from novels. It comes from reading, right? It comes from stories and 
being able to ingest stories, I think much like this, where shit is really hard and it still turns out okay in the end. It doesn't turn out perfect. It doesn't turn out the Disney fairy tale version of happily ever after, but you can still find a life through it and you can still see a way forward. So I think for me, that is a really important part of Evelyn's character that to me really speaks to the ways in which that we develop and create and build our empathy muscle, but then go farther than that and take that empathy and actually make it actionable, right? And it seems small, but the very first way that Evelyn takes that empathy and makes it actionable in the book is by teaching Florian to read. And by telling him, this is going to mean something to you. I promise you that right now you don't see the value in it, but there really is value here. And this is a way that you can escape the confines that the world has given you right now. Yeah, that's a great point. The act of reading. And I love how you put that, that as as reading being a way to escape the confines of the world. I'm wondering if that would have been the same if it were any skill or if reading in particular is important because it allows Florian to lose himself in media to some sort or if what we're looking at is seeing how other people tell stories and then understanding the mechanisms of storytelling so that you can therefore tell your own story, tell your own story about the world and have some sort of say over it. You know, that's a really good question. And my gut instinct to that question was, of course, it's like reading specifically. But then I thought about it in those 10 seconds a little bit more deeply. And I think that the key here is that reading offered Florian and Evelyn a connection of any sort to the outside world where they were both communicating out and being communicated back to. And I think that you could probably make an argument that lots of forms of arts and lots of skills do that same thing, right? I think you could make the argument that depending on the circumstances, dance or visual arts could have offered some of those same skills in self-expression and storytelling and looking at the world from a different lens that isn't necessarily just inherent to reading. I do think that in Western society, the way that we're taught today, it's easy to tie all of those things to reading and storytelling specifically, because most of us go through the K through 12 in the US system, where you spend a lot of time learning to dissect this very specific sort of media and do things like this podcast. And there's less time spent on exploring in depth things like visual arts, things like dance, things like the way that math can actually be an art form at its highest levels. So I think that maybe some of the very specific advantages of reading come from, in my mind, come from my upbringing and my Western lens. But the only other thing I can think is that I, in some ways there's, there might be less ambiguity, less interpretation needed in, in reading and storytelling because you're saying in language very specifically exactly what you mean whereas in more visual forms of storytelling there's I think more of a back and forth between the reader and the the creator to kind of figure out what's happening but that's my kind of rambly response to that question no I appreciate that thank you as a librarian I'm always wondering (laughs) what the importance of reading actually is I want to go further into the story telling theme in this in in this novel because Florian learns how to do magic by learning how to tell their story and 
we learn that a part of doing that magic is that they first have to give up their story. So in order to change anything in the outside world, in order to impose a will, first you have to know your story truthfully and then tell it. And then you can shape the world as to how you want it and, and affect the outside world. And I think that's a really interesting concept and want to hear your thoughts about it, Maggie. I think in a lot of ways it makes sense because I think that there's a certain level of, I don't know, self-understanding that can be really useful when you're understanding context in the outside world. I think that that almost goes back to Evelyn a little bit too, right? Is that Evelyn is able to view her suffering empathetically in a larger context because she has the mental space to think about that extra context and the resources and time to be able to think about that external context. But it all comes down to the fact that she understands her own story and can therefore position it in the larger society around her, right? And that's how she's able to make change. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that the idea of having to give up part of your story you basically forget part of your story when you're doing really big pieces of magic right one of the sticking points for flora slash florian when they're doing magic is that they have to give up a very specific memory of their brother and they didn't really realize what they were giving up until it was already happening right and they weren't able to make a really informed decision to consent to that process and I think that the idea of having to give something up in order to get something back, and I mean, I don't want to bring too much of other episodes, but to me, it just reminds me of the reciprocity that we were talking about with braiding sweetgrass, right? That you can't get something for nothing. There has to be some sort of give and take. And it also, I think, reminds me that the personal is really important, but the personal can also be a pillar, I think, of in a very individualistic society where sometimes giving up part of yourself can really further the greater good if you let it can further your power to do good if you let it so I think it decenters the individual a little bit in a way that I found interesting and I think I'm really only thinking about any of this because of the discussions we've been having over the past couple of weeks thank you for that I want to clarify because I'm not sure I'm not sure I read that the same way as you I don't I don't know if people who are telling their stories lose their memories, but I, it is true that witches have to give up something in order to perform magic. And in order to get magic performed by a witch, you have to give up a part of yourself. And so the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm wondering if these are two separate things, the act of giving up part of yourself versus giving up your memory, because stories are so revered throughout this book, right? So if you know how to tell your story and you don't forget your story, perhaps that's important. You just looked at the text. Do you have answers? I think that I sort of misremembered or misinterpreted something that happened because there is there is a memory of Alfie that Flora is is one of the things that Flora gives up, but it was their choice to kind of give it up sort of sort of situation. It was, wasn't it? No, so she gives she does she does talk about a memory of Alfie, but in it she describes Alfie as a coward. And she doesn't, she she doesn't lose the memory, I think. She loses her love for Alfie. The witch takes her love. And then she regains it somehow, though. So it's not permanent. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. Sorry, it's been a couple of days since I finished the text, and I've read a few other things since then. Then yeah, I, th I think you're totally right, because 
that makes a lot more sense that obviously in order to be able to know one story, you can't forget one story. But I do think that the other things are totally true, right? The, the idea that you can't get something for nothing. And I think knowing one's story in a really deep way means that you can make an informed decision about what reciprocity actually looks like so that you're giving up something of equal or greater value for what you're asking for. And I think that that's a really important theme, especially in a book that, again, deals a little bit with ecology and deals a little bit with the climate too, but also just in general to be able to understand exactly what your worth and what your value is for yourself, but then also in service of others. I agree. I think the know yourself is important as well, because a lot of this book when outsiders are looking when you're getting one character's perspective about another character it's hardly ever accurate and this even occurs once with the witch where the witch is I mean it's kind of accurate but the witch is sizing Evelyn up and decides that Evelyn isn't important and therefore sells her off and is just an imperial girl and we know we know from this book and we knew from before this point that Evelyn has a larger destiny that Elvelyn is very important, but part of that is because Evelyn takes charge of her own story. So there's this idea of telling the rock what it is. Had Flora chosen to tell the rock that it was ugly and useless, the rock would have become ugly and useless. And I think that's important from a modern reality perspective. Maggie and I live in the USA and our text, our history textbooks say one thing and that becomes our truth. We develop truths this way and we kind of see that play out in Genevieve's character. She doesn't know the truth of what happened at Quirk. She knows the truth of what the Imperials have told her and that becomes her truth. And we also kind of see it with the varying perspectives on Lady Iyer, who has sympathetic parts before we find out she's a sociopath <laughs> she had a she had a whole relationship with with Evelyn's mother and that feels important because it it means that she was loved by someone and she had loved somebody and that that sort of humanizes her and might be the only moment of actually humanizing her but for a reader for me it really humanized her and it seemed to humanize her as well for Evelyn so I guess this is just to say that I feel like there's double meaning going on with the story. We can use our stories for good, but we also have to understand the ways that stories that are told throughout our world affect our perspectives and become our reality. And then we need to use our power by knowing our stories, knowing that these things affect our reality to go ahead and change it. To dive into some more of the queer themes in the book, this is also very complicated with Flora's gender fluidity because that wasn't something that they discovered for themselves as life went on. That was something that in some ways was thrust upon them because when they went onto the pirate ship Dove, they were forced to dress and act and take on the persona of a man for safety, but also because that was what was expected of a pirate, basically. And she does it because that's what she needed to do to survive, right? And it's not until she leaves the dove and has more choices that she sort of starts thinking about it. And he says, there's a, there's a really powerful moment in the book where Evelyn is talking to Flora about pronouns because Flora's like, oh, uh, Evelyn calls Florian Florian. And Florian's like, uh, Flora, actually, right? That's my, that's my real name. And Evelyn's like, oh, okay, uh, pronouns? Is there, you know, I've been calling you he this entire time. And 
Flora thinks about it for a minute and she's kind of like, any and all of them feel true and right and good to me. So whatever you want to use is fine. And from that point on in the book, any and all pronouns are used. But it is really complicated, right? Because there is a level of which that was probably always going to be true for them. But the ways in which that they discovered that part of themselves were really traumatic and kind of harmful. And I will say, I don't think I did a little bit of digging. I could be wrong. I don't think that this is an own voices novel in terms of gender nonconforming perspectives. I could totally be wrong there. And something did stick out to me as a flag a little bit here, just because there is so much rhetoric about the idea of the trans community trying to force gender nonconforming ideas onto cis people that I, it plays out differently in this novel, but it did, I don't know, it did spike to me a little bit to have a character discover that they're being, that they were gender fluid by being forced to present as a different gender in part of their life, if that makes sense. And I don't know that I necessarily have positive or negative or any feelings about that but it did just kind of strike to me as a flag especially being fairly certain that this part of the story isn't own voices which if I'm wrong about please let me know because that might also change my perspective on it this is just the data that I have currently yeah I don't know anything about that so listeners that's up to you (laughs) I'm not gonna research it tonight but yeah we would love to know thank you for researching for us yeah I saw that too and I thought that was a bold choice But I also felt, I don't know, I thought that was a bold choice, and I didn't know the identity of the author really at all. But it's still, even though I am, even though I probably don't have the best perspective on these things because I'm not gender nonconforming, it still felt really real, Flora Florian story. So I don't know, I reserve judgment. But yeah, it still felt real to me, which was interesting. Yeah, I definitely don't think it was unreal. And I think that that's sort of why I feel like I don't know how to feel about it, because I think that I agree with you. It just sort of felt like a bold choice and it felt like it really worked with the novel. But I don't know. I do think it can be really dangerous to play on tropes that come from turf rhetoric very readily, you know? So I just kind of want to throw that out there as a flag, because I think that this novel does everything really, really well. But this was the one thing that stuck out to me as being kind of like, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to frame all of this. Bold, bold choice there. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I think that we've covered most of my bases, unless you want to talk about the sea a little bit. Oh, yeah, the sea. Wait, was there something I wanted to say with the sea? I think there was. But I need to think. I need to think. I mean, the sea is literally a character, and that's just so wild to me. Oh, you know what? No, no, no. I do remember what I wanted to talk about. It doesn't have to do necessarily with the sea. My big red flag, that isn't really a red flag, but that kind of makes me sad, is that it feels like these two characters have to die, kind of. I mean, one literally dies in order to find peace and happiness and love. And... That's just a very, it's nice because they're literally changing their reality, but then at some point they're not. God, the sea is changing their reality. And they then live underwater and become mermaids. So that's a spoiler for all of you. But it it felt very much like this idea of, what is it, that, that story that we were first reading college, The Awakening by Kate, whatever her name is, where the main character walks off into the sea and that, that is her freedom. It felt a little bit like that. Even though 
it was happier than that, but it, it sort of felt like a metaphor for we're going to go walk off into the sea. And that doesn't give me the best prescription of how to deal with this chaotic hellhole we live in. Yeah, I was a little like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if the author was very purposefully, right? Because that's a very kill your queers vibe. Although to be although to be fair, there are lots of other queer characters in this novel who come to different ends that aren't, you know, be living happily ever after in the ocean with the sea. No, you're right. It's like there is no prescription there except for just totally change your reality and have this magical moment. But I think for me, if I was going to take anything from that, it's that a radical change in perspective can provide new solutions and thinking outside the box can provide new solutions to problems. Obviously, death is something that we can't overcome in our reality, and that's always going to be true. But we can get so stuck in thinking in one very specific way about what our box looks like and how to navigate within that system that sometimes the answer and the thing to take away from it is that we have to explode the system. We have to go totally outside the box. And I think that that's easier said than done because we're consist- we're all conditioned from the time that we open our eyes in this fucking world to think and understand and conform to whatever societal system that you're born and raised in and live in. But if you can think creatively outside of that, other solutions might might come to you. So to be bold in that sense. All right. That's all I have to talk about. Is there anything else, Maggie? I don't think so. Overall, I really, really enjoyed this novel and I highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. I think that especially for a debut novel, this author really did an excellent job. And I think that even the the red flags that Harmony and I have identified are maybe more just pink flags of consideration versus inherently problematic things yeah it's just things to think about you know they cha- they challenged how i would have told this story if i was the person who was writing it yes yes it was still a fantastic book though oh my god i loved it so much okay what are we reading next week because i don't know next week there's an interview coming out that i did with the author zoe sivak about her novel mademoiselle revolution which was also uh, awesome. a really great interview <laughs> yeah and a really great book so i'm excited for y'all to hear it yay Okay. And and what are you reading right now? I am reading The Blood Colony by Tanana Reeve Dew and, sorry, I had to grab the book, and The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornicek. Ooh, tell me how that is. I will. Okay. What am I reading? I'm reading, it's the latest practical magic book. Wait one second. (laughs) Uh, Like Rules of Magic or something? No, that's, that's the, that's a different one. That's the one with the aunts. This is the one with the practical magic daughters. I think, oh, okay. So it's called The Book of Magic by Alice Hoffman. And I'm also going to start reading because I just finished this book. I'm going to go back to reading The Mademoiselle Revolution that Maggie interviewed Zoe Seaback about because I didn't have to do that interview. So now I could take my time and now I'm going to finish it. And it was so delightful. And it's been very sad for me to have to put it down all these weeks while I focus on the assigned reading. Okay. I think that's all folks. All right. That's all folks. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. 
You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.